Welcome to Expert Minutes. I'm John Hambone McGuire, and today my guest is none other than legendary DJ Fat Tony. Fat Tony is one who has transcended what the idea of a DJ can be. His prolific career has spanned over three decades, and it's always had one foot facing the future, so much so that I wouldn't even begin to know where to start listing his accolades in this introduction. This episode is one of my favorites that we've done, and Tony's got a great story, and Tony is not shy about telling that story. So without further ado, in his own words, Fat Tony. Hey, Tony, how's it going? I'm good. How are you? You know, I can't complain. I'm stoked to have you on the show today. You know, we usually start this off with a really simple question, and that's, you know, we know what you're doing right now, but what did you want to be when you grew up? I kind of think the first thing I wanted to be was an actor. That was at school because at the time I was kind of having an affair with my drama teacher. So it was always a good excuse to say to people that I love doing drama. I didn't really have goals. I never had a end game. There was never a goal where I thought, okay, in five years I want to be doing this. Life wasn't like that for me. It kind of was very much in the moment and what came along, come along, and that's where it went. That was the direction it went in. So no goals. You know, and that's great. And sometimes that's the best way to end up where you are. You've had a amazing three decade plus career in the industry. And what I find most interesting about that is, you know, when you think about people who are creative, you know, especially you think about something like a band, a band will release a track and then for decades they'll be talking about the track. You've managed to not only stay relevant, you've also managed to innovate constantly. So what is your secret to staying on top of your game and pushing the boundaries? I kind of think the, the secret is not to be afraid to like new things. Change is a really important thing. And when you're doing a job like mine, you have to change with the times, you know. So music's always been my passion. It's the greatest drug I've ever taken. And therefore, music's a really important thing of my life. So it's always about never being blinkered when it comes to music, always being open and accessible to anything and being honest with yourself around it. So for me, the way I've stayed on top of my game is the fact that I don't get fearful around the new so if there's new DJs, I like to promote them. You know, anything that new comes along, it excites me. I still get excited by it. And I kind of think the reason that I'm still in the game and relevant, as you said, is because of my passion and my love for what I do. Well, that's clearly undeniable. And you've also managed to bridge the gap between the music world, the fashion world, and actually social outreach programs. I mean, you've got a foot in all three. Let's real quick talk about fashion and how fashion has really tied into your longevity in the music business. I mean, for me at the beginning, before I even was a DJ, I started doing music for fashion shows back in the 80s. So I kind of worked with the likes of Catherine Hamnett, Joseph, which are all big like English brands. You know, I worked my way through the whole fashion field doing music because I kind of talked my way into that job. And then the DJing took over and then everything else that went with it and then the downfalls and the uprisings of the downfalls. So fashion kind of got put on hold. And then when I got clean 13 and a half years ago, I kind of started to find my feet within my friendship circles again. I started to be me. I started to be the real me again. And people like that. And, you know, I kind of just went back to where I finished off, really. And fashion and music for me have always gone hand in hand. I come from a very creative time in the 80s when London was a very small place so everybody knew each other and all those people from that time are now the editors of Vogue 
pop stars. You know, they've all got their role within fashion. So I kind of always been in keeping with that anyway. So, you know, the paths have always crossed. I think music and fashion are totally hand in hand. And always have been. And it's such a amazing thing to see how it continues to evolve through the decades. You know, I grew up in the 80s as well. And rock and roll and fashion were hand in hand. They were peanut butter and jelly. 100%. You know, you wouldn't have had the Rolling Stones and the swinging 60s. You know, they went hand in hand. It was all about fashion. Mary Kwan, all of those looks that defined the 60s came from music. It's the same with the 70s. Mark Boland, T-Rex, it was all about fashion. You know, then you had punk rock, which was always about fashion. You know, the clothes came first, then the music. So it was always about tribes and movement. And that's where fashion comes from. It comes from the streets. It comes from tribes. Today, it comes more from the big headline designers. But, you know, they take their influence from the street. So it's always been music-based. Yeah, it's always brilliant. And I always got a kick out of that when people would consistently accuse other bands of selling out when you just really don't look at it as, well, punk rock was fashion first. Exactly. So with that, I mean, one of the things I find most appealing about your story, and congratulations on 13 plus years. I mean, that's huge. Thank you. And it's huge to know yourself finally throughout your music and your art and now your sobriety. I know you're working on a program to help other people get sober. And I think it's a very important thing, especially because the club scene and even, you know, any kind of live music scene is always in so many words infested with, you know, addiction and abuse. Of course. Yeah. You know, because people go to those places for escapism. We use music, we use drugs and drugs and music go hand in hand in a lot of places. But, you know, it's about teaching people drugs and music and enjoyment are three different separate things. And people get so lost in it. For the first time you go out clubbing, you're going out to enjoy the music and the experience. You're not going out because there's a barman that sells cocaine there. You're going out to dance. You're going out to experience new things. And once you experience that, then, you know, it kind of goes to the next level. Then the drugs come into play, you know, like all scenes. It's a vicious circle. Yes, and it's interesting because now there is sort of that sea change that's coming in a lot of aspects of the entertainment industry where people are starting to realize you could actually be more productive if you're sober. Oh, totally. People always think about recovery and people in recovery as the last stop. Do you get what I mean? And yeah. it's not that way anymore. It's now the new generation of kids coming in that are clean. They don't want to use drink and drugs because they've seen the damage that it's caused before them. And I hate to use that word woke. But, you know, there's this whole generation that don't want to drink because all they want to do is get on in life. And drinking and taking drugs gets in that way of getting on. And I kind of just think, you know, what we're experiencing now is this whole change that's coming. I mean, especially after lockdown, you know, with lockdown and the whole coronavirus thing, it kind of pushed people's addictions out to a new height. And there's so many people that just don't want to go down that avenue and are looking at it as, okay, there's a real change coming. And it's, you know, one that our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents couldn't make because drinking was the social thing. And it's no longer that way. You know, it's changing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm a year into my sobriety myself, and I come from... Congratulations. Thank you, man. I really appreciate that. I come from a musical background, so I've seen this firsthand. I know how this goes. And I agree with you. The lockdown is interesting because it actually makes your bubble a lot smaller. And it actually brings you to a point where you have to really face and own everything in your immediate area and start to clean yeah. your house first because you can't leave the house. 
Exactly. You know, everybody's world's become really small really quickly. And, you know, it was going to go in one direction. You either owned it and thought, okay, I can deal with this. Drinking's not going to make this any easier. Taking drugs certainly isn't going to make this any easier. It's going to drive you insane. You know, what happened was alcoholism went through the roof because people were suddenly at home with partners that they don't particularly like, yep. but they're in relationships. And, you know, that partner's normally at work for eight hours a day, so they didn't see each other. You know, they're suddenly at home with their kids. You know, they find life on life's terms really hard. So their crutches, you know, what the, the, way, the crutches that they've been brought up with is straight away, I need a drink, I need a drug. You know, so, of course, it was going to go through the room because depression and all those things that go with it, you know, people think drinking alleviates depression. It's a total opposite of the spectrum. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's funny because when you think about how TV and the media portrays things, like I've been watching on this little vacation that we call the pandemic, I've been rewatching things like Murder, She Wrote, and I love Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I could not bet Vangela Lansbury never killed, did it? Uh, yeah, never killed anyone, but every man who was on the show at least took the shot once. Yeah. So I'm watching it, and it's funny how in the 80s especially, it's like, oh my God, I'm so shook up. I'm like, oh, here, would you like a glass of red wine? Here, have a beer. It'll help you calm your nerves. Yeah. And it's like, no, Whiskey. that's the worst thing you could do always straight away when anyone was shook up you know there had been an accident someone had got killed they go straight for a glass of scotch here take this calm your nerves and you know that was society that was media that was all pumped into us you know it was either that or smoking and thankfully that doesn't happen on tv anymore but you know it's been ingrained in us since we were children it's acceptable to have a drink when there's been a drama <laughs> It's kind of mad, isn't it? It's very mad. And it's some things that like, you know, as we evolve as a society, we start to look back and we start to see things that, wow, we're hardwired for this. Yep. And things that aren't acceptable, but we were kind of made to believe, no, this is just as fine. As long as it's this, but not this, it's totally okay, which is crazy. Yeah. So, you know, since we're talking about sobriety, there was recently an online documentary by Mixmag about you. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So basically what happened was Mixmag did an article on me and the kids at Mixmag basically came to me and said, oh, we want to do like an online feature on you because we think the story wasn't really told within the magazine. So I was like, fine, sure. So we filmed it. They went away. Two days later, they came back and they were like, can we do more? So it ended up doing this short film, which is 18 minutes long. It's now been seen by five and a half million people on their Mixmag Facebook alone. It's been like three and a half million on there. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's been phenomenal, the amount of people that watched it. And what it's about is basically it's called The Rise and Fall and Rise of DJ Fat Tony, the most famous DJ you've never heard of. And the whole idea of the film was to go back to my youth and to talk about the pros and the highlights of my life and then obviously the real lows and then how to rebuild your life and your career after drink and drugs. Because, you know, kind of when we come to the end of the road in so many ways and the only other thing that you look forward to is death and you overcome that and you get a new way of life. Uh, the film's really a story about redemption. You know, there's really famous quotes in it that said, you know, I spent over a million pounds on drugs. Wow. Which they kind of used to sell the film. But really, it wasn't a boast. It was a part of the film where I wasn't proud of spending a million pounds on drugs. It was the fact that we, I'd spent that money without thought. Do you know what I mean? Because I was so lost in addiction, an addiction that took everything from me. And then what the story was about was about rebuilding and getting my life back and actually discovering who I was. So, yeah, it's an 18-minute film. We're writing a book at the moment on the same subject, obviously, which is much more in-depth. 
But, you know, we had like five nights of years of it at Selfridges for invited guests in London. And everyone came out of the film crying and, and they're all saying the same thing, that it wasn't long enough. But, you know, it's a really emotional thing because my mum's in it, there's friends in it talking about where my addiction took me. And, um, you know, it's one of those things that's really hard to watch because it's the truth. The truth hurts. You know, if it was a load of made-up stuff and it was humorous and funny, it would have been a total different thing. But because it's the truth, I find it really hard to watch. You know, but yeah, as I say, five and a half million people have seen it and I'm very chuffed by that. That's amazing. And you know what? It has to be helpful for those people who've seen it because even if it doesn't help them right now, it's something that plants that seed in the back of their head for when they need it most. So Yeah, it's totally. I get so many DMs every day on Instagram and literally I get between 10 and 30 messages a day of people that have either seen the film or they watched interviews and they message me directly to thank me because they relate to it because it's so honest. And I think being honest is the key point to it all. Because I talk about things that most people wouldn't dream of talking about. You know, for me, it's uh, about getting it out there and identifying. And that's huge. And do you find, because your Instagram, you know, for those listening, you should definitely check it out. It's hilarious. It's a curation of memes, mostly, from what I've seen. And do you find that with the humor that you bring to your Instagram, it kind of helps people lower their guard a little bit and be a little more open about talking to you about, you know, the deeper things that are going on in their lives? Totally, 100%. I mean, you know, the darker you get on your Instagram and the more humor you find in that darkness, other people relate to that because they're in that darkness themselves. And they go, oh my God, you can laugh at that. We build this stuff up in our heads when we're in it so big and we think we can never tell someone that. And when you do a meme about it and you bring it to the surface, it kind of takes the power out of it for other people and then they relate to it and then they DM me and they go, wow, thank you for bringing that up and finding the humor in it. I just think that the more... We laugh at our mistakes and we're able to laugh at our mistakes by dealing with our mistakes, the better. Yeah, absolutely. And something like a meme is the, I think, millennial equivalent of street level art where, you know, you'd have a message to get out. You'd blast it on the side of a building and only X amount of people would see that message and be able to kind of have their thoughts provoked by the message. But now, you know, with everything being shared and then reshared to infinity, more people are really starting to see and understand the kind of things that everyone's bringing to the table. 100%. You know, sometimes I'll post something and two days later, I'll get sent it like 30 times. <laughs> people <laughs> yeah. like sending me saying, have you seen this? And I'm like, uh, yeah, it was me that posted it. But you know, that's the art of Instagram now. It is an art. People posting memes randomly. I really like it when people message me and say, I really get your Instagram. And they get it because it's not random stuff. There's a kind of a method to my madness as such. You know, every day I start with the day with a thought of the day. And it kind of is always linked in with what's going on either around me or in society. And then it kind of gets more and more deep, darker as the day goes on. But, you know, when you do that, it helps so many people because it's so accessible. Everybody loves Instagram. They love this page. They love to laugh. They love to joke. But, you know, there is a serious side to it as well. There's a message within all of it. So with the Instagram being kind of a grassroots way of seeping into people's minds and helping them, I know you're taking much bigger steps to help people. There's a saying within 12-step fellowship is that, that, you know, you only keep what you have by giving it away. And I want the whole world to be in recovery. I want the whole world to feel like I feel on a daily basis. You know, I've been given a second life and I kind of just think that the more people that I can help by doing that stuff, the better. So I started a self-help group, which is on 
every day at one o'clock on Zoom, right at the beginning of lockdown. It's still going now. We get about between 50 and 60 people every day on there from all over the world. And it kind of is like a self-help thing. We start a program on YouTube called The Recovery. And within that program, what we do is we interview people that have been through trauma or drug addiction or alcoholism. I'm very blessed. I can go to a 12-step fellowship meeting, NA or AA, and I can share my truth. People in the real world, you know, out there who don't have access to that wouldn't get that understanding. So what we do with the recovery is we bring that to the open, basically. So we get one person sharing their story and I will relate to it. And it's more of a conversation between two addicts. So, you know, there's been so many people. We had Kelly Osborne. We've had Brandon Novak. We've had so many different people talking about where their addiction took them and where life's taken them since addiction and how they stay clean and how they stay on the straight and narrow and how they deal with their mental health. So that's what the recovery does. And it's been a real success because it's not done in a textbook way. It's done in a real way. It's two people having a conversation. There are no questions. There is no script. We literally go on to Zoom and we start talking. And that's the beauty of it because it's real. And I think that the more people that see it, the more people, you know, obviously get help from it. Well, that's brilliant. Even after all these years, you're still finding ways to innovate. Tony, what is next for you? You know, I'm doing a Netflix series at the moment. Brilliant. Yep. So that's going to be exciting. That's for next year. Really, we're in such strange times because in England, we're about to go into the semi-lockdown. Bars and clubs now have to, well, no clubs are allowed to open, but bars now have to shut at 10 p.m. at night. So for my industry, that's kind of nigh on impossible for me to work. So it's about innovation. It's about adapting to new things. And I think the next coming year, I kind of think there's different avenues. I'm starting a clothing range called Arrogant Hypocrite where we're taking history pieces from old nightclub images and stuff like that. You know, it's just about changing. And that's what I've always done. I've always changed with the times. You know, I'm an addict. I'm a survivor. More now than ever, we need to survive. So for me, you know, that's the way forward. Right on, man. And my final question to you is, of everything that you've done, what is the achievement you're most proud of? Finding freedom freedom just to leave my house and go about my business go to meetings go out to lunch with my friends go and do my job and come home and be really content with who i am and where i am it's not about thinking about who what or how i can get more today i'm really happy with who i am and where i am and i think that's the biggest achievement is actually to find self-love and i'm in a position now that i can love someone else because i love myself and i think for everything that i've done in my entire life that's the biggest achievement. I love it. Fat Tony, thank you so much for sharing your time with me today and having a conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I'm truly blessed to be a part of your program. Thank you. Thanks so much to Fat Tony for coming on the show today. If you want a good laugh, definitely check out his Instagram, DJ underscore Fat Tony underscore. And if you're looking to tighten up your wardrobe, also check out his clothing line, Arrogant Hypocrite. Thanks for listening to another episode of Expert Minutes. I'm John Hambone McGuire, and remember, if your day job's not your dream job, keep hustling. Hey nerds, I'm Sarah, the paper nerd, and if you've ever wondered what goes into that greeting card you just sent or received, 
well, quite a lot. Get your paper fix on the paper fold where I host an enchanting mix of personalities and players all nerding out on my favorite topic, stationery. From the designs of our snail mail communications to the precious space created when two people correspond, there's a lot to cover. So come grab a seat in the stationery community's only five-star paper salon, The Paper Fold, now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network.